1: What's up with those illusions on the internet where you can hear the same sound one of two different ways, depending on the word that you're looking at? And why do electrical outlets sometimes look like a face to you? How can you have full, rich visual experience with your eyes closed? And when you want to cross a street and you hit that crosswalk button, are some of those buttons fake and they don't actually do anything? And why are there some pictures that you can only see once you're told what you're looking at? And although brains are often celebrated for their parallel processing, what should they really be celebrated for? Welcome to Inner Cosmos with me, David Eagleman. I'm a neuroscientist and author at Stanford. And in these episodes, we sail deeply into our three-pound universe to understand why we perceive the world in the ways that we do. Today's episode is about expectations and what that has to do with perception. Unless you were living in outer space or off the grid in 2015, your life was touched by a very tiny, specific event that happened on a small island in Scotland. Two young people were going to get married there. And a week before the wedding, the mother of the bride was shopping around for what she was going to wear. So she finds some outfits at a store down in Chester, England that she thinks will look nice. And while she's making the decision, she snaps pictures of each of them and she buys one of them. So she's driving home afterwards and she texts the pictures of the three outfits to her daughter. And she tells her that she had bought the third one. And no one could have ever guessed that this particular piece of clothing that she sent a picture of, this one-piece garment, is about to become the most famous outfit that ever existed in the history of humankind. Because the daughter writes back to clarify which outfit the mother had bought. And she texts, oh, the white and gold one? And the mother texts back, no, it's blue and black. And the daughter replies, mom, if you think that's blue and black, you need to go and see the doctor. So the mother shows the phone to her partner in the car who, despite having been there and bought the dress with her, looks at the photo and says, yeah, I think it's white and gold. So when they get home, they show the picture to their younger daughter who agrees with the mother that the photo looks blue and black. So given this funny disagreement, The bride-to-be posts the photo to her friends on Facebook to settle this. And to her surprise, she doesn't find consensus. Some think it's black and blue. Others think it's white and gold. And each person feels totally certain about what they see. So for about a week, this debate bubbles around in this small island community. The day of the wedding arrives, and the mother wears the dress to the event, and the issue about the photo becomes such a point of discussion that the musicians in the band allegedly almost didn't make it onto the stage to play because they were wrapped up in the debate. So a few days after the wedding, one of the band members, who was a friend of the happy couple, she posts the photo to her blog on Tumblr. And by the end of the day, it gets 5,000 comments And soon enough, the data scientists at Tumblr are examining this post because it's getting 14,000 views each second. That's close to a million views each minute. So a woman on the BuzzFeed social media team sets up a poll about the color for Tumblr users. And then she packs up and goes home on the subway. And by the time she gets off the subway, her phone is overwhelmed. And soon enough, the BuzzFeed page hits new records for how many unique visitors were on the page at the same time, hitting almost 700,000. The number of comments on the original post increases tenfold that night. By late that night, there are 5,000 tweets per minute. Using hashtag the dress. And by the middle of that night, it's grown to 11,000 tweets per minute. Within the week, more than 10 million tweets are talking about the dress. This was the dress that, as they say, broke the internet. Now, if you were, say, a space alien, you might look at all this human activity and think, wait, what? Why is the world stopping over a simple picture of a piece of clothing in the UK? Now, the answer, as you know, is that none of us humans would have found it interesting either, except that someone that you loved and trusted said, what do you mean you're seeing it that color? It's so clearly the other color. And you said, wait, what? Are you being serious? And they asked you the same. And then the awe sets in you both realize that you're looking at the same thing in the outside world and you're having different perceptions, a different experience on the inside. Now, no one was more excited about the dress than neuroscientists because for neuroscientists, this was a terrific demonstration of what we're going to talk about today. So to start things off, let's just point out how important these kinds of perceptual oddities are to neuroscience. I've spent a big chunk of my career studying illusions. I've published scientific papers about illusions in journals like Science and Nature. And some years ago, I wrote a review article in the journal Nature Reviews Neuroscience, and I titled it Visual Illusions and the Brain. And in that article, I laid out how powerful illusions are for figuring out what is under the hood. Sometimes I feel like illusions are interesting only to 10-year-olds, and for most people, they become nothing but entertainment. But truthfully, illusions are microscopes for understanding what is happening in the brain, because with them, we can reveal the systematic differences between what is actually out there in the world and what we believe is out there. And by dialing the illusion around carefully, we can usually put constraints on how the network of neurons must be operating. Now, most illusions are the type in which we measure what's being presented in the outside world, like two lines of identical length, and you see it as two different lengths. And we say, aha, there's a systematic difference between what's on the page and what you perceive. Or maybe I show you two parallel lines against some background and you don't see them as parallel. Or you look at a totally static picture on a page and you swear that it's moving. But the dress was interesting because it wasn't that traditional kind of illusion. Instead, one person sees one thing and the person standing right next to them sees another Now, what all illusions, including the dress, tell us right away is a foundational point that's not always intuitive, which is that we don't simply look at the world and passively receive what's out there. Instead, our brains actively construct our perception and different brains can do so differently. So now let's move deeper into this mystery by turning to a different illusion that took over the internet a few years later in May of 2018. Laurel, Laurel, Laurel. Now this was an audio file that was originally recorded by a reader in 2007 for vocabulary.com and some students apparently re-recorded that file while there was some background noise in a room. So a 15-year-old freshman in Georgia named Katie was listening to that recording, and she realized that she was hearing some funny ambiguity. And she posted this little audio clip on Instagram, and the next day her friend posted it on Reddit, and then it got picked up on Twitter, and soon it went nuts. Why? Because just like the dress people can have a different perception of the same item presented to their senses. About half the people hear the word Yanny, and the other half hear the word Laurel. 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 Now, how can people hear different things? So hang tight. I'll tell you in a minute. But what I want to point out for now is that just like the dress, some people have one experience, some people have another. Same sound recording, different experiences. Now, the Yanni Laurel clip made its rounds on the internet, but at about the exact same time in May of 2018, something even better surfaced on YouTube. A guy had posted a video where he was reviewing a children's toy from the Ben 10 franchise. And the toy lights up and says something. And here's what it sounds like. It says the word green needle. So listen carefully for green needle. Okay, well, that's not actually what the toy was saying. It was actually saying the word brainstorm, which is the toy character's name. So listen for the word brainstorm. Now, I just played the exact same audio file in both cases. But depending on your expectation, what you were listening for, You'll hear different things. So, I'm going to play this file again over and over for about 20 seconds. And I want you to think about brainstorm or think about green needle. Try to go back and forth about which one you're hearing. Switch your thinking from one to the other at any point. <laughs> So what the heck's going on here? How can a single audiophile be heard two completely different ways? Seems like magic, but it's actually neuroscience. All these internet memes actually give deep insight into a fundamental and rarely appreciated property of the brain. So I'm going to unpack these illusions in a few steps. The first clue to the mystery is that the brain does not tolerate ambiguity. It really wants to come to a conclusion about exactly what's out there. Now, that's a major daily challenge for the brain because so much of what you see or hear is ambiguous. You have data points that come streaming into the brain through the eyes or the ears or the fingertips, but often they could be interpreted more than one way. So what does the brain do in this circumstance? It locks onto a single way of understanding it. In other words, if there are multiple possibilities, it'll force an answer. Now, let's pause for just a moment to appreciate something here. When you read about the brain, you always see it celebrated for its parallel processing. It can do lots of things at once. But what it should be equally celebrated for, the thing that no one ever bothers to highlight, is... Serialization. It takes lots of activity and it squeezes it down to one thing. It serializes it. It takes in information that could be interpreted in lots of different ways and it crunches it down to a single interpretation. Now, why is it so good at serializing, at getting possibilities down to a single answer? Because fundamentally, your brain has the challenge of controlling a giant body made of trillions of cells. And when you come to a tree in the path, it has to go either left or right around the tree. Because of the physics of the world, it cannot do both. And so it has to make a single decision, go right or go left, and drag all those trillions of cells with it. Your brain has to be good at taking possibilities and crushing them down to a single decision. And it's the same with your perceptual life. Your brain is used to dealing with a world where it has to come to conclusions, having to say, look, there are lots of possibilities here. But for me to function in the world, I have to make an assumption that what I am looking at is a piece of food or a boulder or a bear at a distance or whatever. So the brain doesn't tolerate ambiguity, but it always says, all right, this is my answer. Okay, so now let's introduce one more perceptual illusion of this flavor, and then we're going to unpack what's going on. So surely you've seen this one before. You draw the outline of a cube on a piece of paper. You just draw a square and then an offset square and then lines connecting the corners of one to the corners of the other. So it's 12 lines. It's the outline of a cube. This little wireframe drawing is known as the Necker cube. Now, you've seen this before, but as you know, if you've stared at one, it's perceptually Ambiguous because if you stare at this little wireframe, it looks like it's coming out one way from the page, even though you could perceive the same drawing in two different ways. Either the lower square is the face of the cube coming toward you, or the upper square is the one coming out toward you. But your brain makes a choice. Now you could imagine a space alien who looks at this little drawing of the wireframe cube and says, Okay, well, both configurations of the cube are equally probable, so I'll see it both ways at once. But we can't do that. We have to see it one way or the other. Your brain forces a single interpretation. And this is the same thing that's happening with the other illusions. With the dress, you don't see it as both blue and black and white and gold. And in a minute, we'll see why. The part I just want to say now is that your brain concludes that it is one or the other and then it sticks with that. And likewise with Yanny Laurel, both sounds are present in the audio file, but you don't hear Yanny and Laurel at the same time stacked on one another. And it's exactly the same thing with brainstorm and green needle. Both interpretations are possible, but your brain won't do both at once. It collapses the possibilities to a single answer. In all these cases, even though the data is consistent with either interpretation, your brain makes a call. It goes left or right around the tree. You very clearly perceive one or the other. And this is because the brain isn't passively receiving the world. It's making choices.
5: Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Okay, but how does your brain know how to collapse ambiguous data to a single interpretation? It does so by leveraging assumptions. So let's go a level deeper with the dress. Why does it happen that some people see it one way and some people the other? It happens because your brain sees a picture of a dress in the shop and it makes dozens of assumptions totally unconsciously. Now, what's amazing is that the assumptions aren't directly about the dress, but about things you didn't even know you were thinking about. What is the light source in the photograph? Is the dress mostly being lit by fluorescent lights Or by sunlight, is the dress facing a window or is the window behind it? What time of day is it? What season is it? Your brain is considering all of these questions. And fundamentally, this all has to do with a computation that it does known as color constancy. Color constancy is this sophisticated ability of our visual systems to perceive the color of something as constant, even when the light source, the illumination changes. So let's say I'm wearing a white t-shirt and we're standing outside talking in the sunlight. You will see my shirt as white. Now we go indoors into the coffee shop and the illuminant changes. In other words, the light that's bouncing off my t-shirt changes. Now it's fluorescent light. Compared to sunlight, the fluorescent light has a different spectrum of colors coming out. And so when those bounce off my shirt, you have a different spectrum of colors hitting your eyes. And yet, you still see it as white. And then that night, we go into a dance club and the lighting is blue. And yet, you have no problem seeing the shirt as white even though it's mostly blue light reflecting off the shirt into your eyes. And then afterwards, we go sit by a campfire, and my shirt still looks white. Your brain retains a constant perception of the color of the shirt, even though the wavelengths bouncing off of it are very different. So what does this tell us? Well, it means that the way your brain determines a color is not just about the colors hitting your eye from the shirt. It has to do with something else. And that something else is everything else in the scene. So when you're looking at my shirt, your eyes are drinking in everything else the background, the color of the skin on my arms, the color of the floors and walls, the colors of all the other jeans and shirts and signs in the whole scene. And it uses all of that to estimate the background illumination and then make the right computation about the color of the shirt. In the sunlight, in the coffee shop, at the dance club, at the campfire, It's doing all of these computations, and this is what allows it to subtract off the background lighting so that it can see what color things are most likely to actually be. That's the phenomenon of color constancy. The color of the shirt remains constant even under different illumination. And that's what allows us to see the colors of objects in the world consistently, whether we're looking under sunlight or moonlight or firelight or whatever. So the first lesson is you're not just seeing what's out there. Your brain is actively interpreting information and serving up a story to you. And I'll go into this more in a future episode, but this is why we can see strawberries as red, for example, when we change the background color such that the actual light bouncing off the strawberries is gray light. Your brain can nonetheless say, okay, well, given that everything else in the scene is now greenish, I can subtract that off and know that I'm looking at something red. Now, in order to do all of this that I've been talking about, Your brain has to make lots of assumptions about what the color should be, and different brains do it differently. With the dress, you see it as either white and gold or blue and black, depending on the assumptions your brain is making. When you glance at the photo on your phone, you have no idea. That your brain is doing all those sophisticated computations under the hood to tell you what is the actual color of this garment, given my assumptions about all the lighting details. The issue is that your brain grew up in a particular environment, maybe with a lot of snow or a lot of sunlight or fog. And your brain makes assumptions about the time of day and the season and the balance of artificial lighting to natural lighting to make sense of this little photo. What hues does the lighting contain? If your brain ignores a bit of the blue side, you'll see the dress as white and gold. If your brain pays less attention to the yellow side of the spectrum, you'll see it as blue and black. You have no insight into the fact that your brain is making all these assumptions under the hood. Was the photo of the dress taken with the window facing it or behind it? Was it morning light or afternoon light? And is your experience of the world based on the fact that you are a morning lark or you are a night owl. One of my colleagues, Pascal Wallish, showed that people who were early risers were more likely to think that the dress was lit by natural light, and so they saw it as white and gold. But night owls presumably had more assumptions about artificial lighting, and they were more likely to see the dress as blue and black. Your brain is determining the color of the dress by comparing it against the other objects in the background of the photo and making its best guess at all these parameters. So your brain relies on the answers to questions that you didn't even think it was asking. And the idea of imposing assumptions, this is the same with Yanni and Laurel in the auditory domain or with Green Needle and Brainstorm. Your brain is imposing an interpretation. But what's interesting in this case is that the assumption can be changed more easily, typically by just staring at the word visually. Because your brain is trying to disambiguate what it's hearing, and suddenly it has lots of help from the visual system because it sees a word. So the frequencies of both words, Yanny and Laurel or Green Needle Brainstorm, they're contained in the audio file. So just depending on how you listen for it, you can hear one or the other. So the brain constantly nails down its world by making assumptions. And we see this with everything. And even though these internet memes get all of our attention, the fact is that our brains have to make assumptions all the time. And this is because most of the inputs from the world are quite noisy. For example, you can still understand me even if my speech is choppy or if I'm speaking and there's lots of background noise like at a restaurant. What's actually hitting your ears in these scenarios is a very messy signal but the brain imposes an interpretation about what must have been said. And that's what you perceive, what you believe you heard. A lot of your cell phone conversations are super noisy, but you typically don't realize it because you keep making your reasonable interpretations. Now, this is true of most of what is hitting your eyes and ears. You don't catch a fraction of the data But your brain fills in the details to put together a story. And this, by the way, is what's at the heart of a lot of art and graphic design. You just see a few curves and you interpret it as a face or a series of segmented lines and you interpret that as a body. We are always operating off thin data, but that doesn't stop us from coming to clear conclusions. And before I explain how our neural networks go about making these assumptions, let's just take a second to look at how your brain is so imperfect at this. Take pareidolia, which is when you perceive a meaningful pattern where none exists. Like when you look at an electrical outlet and you see a face made up of little eyes and a sort of surprised mouth, you can't help but see that your brain imposes that interpretation on it. Or you see a face in the clouds. Or someone sees the face of their local deity in a piece of toast. Why does this happen? Well, your brain is really wired up to see faces. And so it triggers that interpretation whenever it sees three blobs in the approximately right configuration. And this same thing can happen with sounds. Like when there's some weird sound and your brain thinks, it's a person shouting or someone calling your name or whatever. This is the brain working to make sense of the world around it. All it ever does is look for meaning from data in the world. In fact, typically the brain will try to impose an interpretation even if you have random noise. That's the idea with Rorschach ink blots. You have these blobs on a page, and your brain reaches for some way of explaining them. Oh, that looks like a rabbit, or an airplane, or an emperor on a throne, or whatever. And generally, a lot of life involves forcing patterns on random noise. Here's an auditory example from my colleague Diana Deutsch, who has spent her career pioneering auditory illusions. So here's an experiment where she plays Mixed up audio that doesn't say anything, but it sounds like speech, and people will generally impose the interpretation of words on these. This is essentially the sound version of Rorschach blots. Different people will generally hear different things, and it seems to be related to what they are thinking about or what's on their mind. So this all reminds us of the power of the brain to impose meaning. Just think about the situation when you're expecting a friend and you're looking around for him at a crowded mall Everyone looks like him for just a fraction of a second. You look at someone's face and you think, oh, that's him. And then 500 milliseconds later, your visual system takes in more information and decides, oh, never mind, false alarm. And then we typically forget that we even thought that, but we are expecting to see our friend. And so our brains impose that expectation on lots of faces. Okay. So we've established that brains take ambiguous signals and squish them down to a single interpretation by use of assumptions. And that's why we see the dress as one color or the other, or we hear brainstorm or green needle, but not both. But how do our brains actually make their choice? How do they pull this off, neurally speaking? They do it by combining bottom-up information with top-down information. Now, bottom-up means information from the outside, from the world. What are the air compression waves hitting my eardrums? Or what are the photons hitting my retina? Those are the signals that I am receiving. But we don't interpret those bottom-up signals at face value because they're usually not sufficient. Instead, your brain melds this with... Top down information, which means your expectations, what we think is likely to be true in the outside world, given our experience with it. And it's only in combination, the data plus our expectations, that we see anything in the world. And the surprise, I think, the counterintuitive part is that your prior assumptions, your expectations, the top-down part, this is the overwhelming majority of what determines what you see. For example, it seems like you just open your eyes and there's the world. But in fact, when you look at the visual cortex at the back of the brain, which is the place that receives the information from the eyes, You find that only 5% of the input there is coming from the eyes, and the rest is all feedback activity. In other words, 95% of the data is coming from higher levels of the visual system and other areas of the brain. In fact, what is so crazy is that you don't even need your eyes to have full, rich visual experience. You can have this with your eyes closed. And this is what we call dreams. And what's happening here is that this is all internally generated activity and none of it's entering through the eyes when you're asleep. And it's not that much different from your normal vision. So your perception of the world when you're walking around is something like an awake dream. Now, I'm going to return to this issue in future episodes, but what we want to concentrate on right now is that your eyes are not simply a camera and your ears are not simply a microphone. For those of you who have been listening for a while to this podcast, you know this is a major theme. Your brain is locked in silence and darkness and needs to make assumptions based on very thin data. So, when I ask you to think about the words green needle, that is top down information that shapes how you interpret the bottom up data. In contrast, imagine that you stare at the word brainstorm while listening. You lock that in as your top down expectation, and then that shapes your bottom up data, and that's what you hear. Even though both interpretations are available, your brain surfaces those features out of the landscape of data that match what you're looking for. In other words, your expectations, what you listen for is what you hear. And by the way, all this is related to why lip reading works when you're in a noisy environment. You watch somebody's mouth while they're talking, and in this way, you combine a bit of noisy auditory data with a bit of noisy visual, and that sharpens your guess for what was just said. During the pandemic, a lot of conversations went misunderstood because people were wearing masks and lip reading went out the window. Now, amazingly, This top-down information is so important that sometimes you can set up a picture where you don't have any real prior assumptions, and there's not enough information in the picture to see anything. And only when I tell you some interpretation does the bottom-up information make any sense at all. You can only see what's in front of you if you're given top-down direction. For example, I've put a cool picture on my website at eagleman.com slash podcast. Take a look at this field of black and white blobs and see what it looks like to you. And presumably, it looks really like nothing at all, just a bunch of blobs. But if I tell you what it is while you stare at it, then you suddenly see it. It seems immediately obvious and you cannot see anything other than that. And the only thing that's changed is that you now have a top-down expectation about what you're seeing. And suddenly, all these blobs make clear sense. I'm not going to tell you what the blobs are here, but if you go to the website and scroll all the way to the bottom of the page, I'll give you a hint there so you can enjoy the experience of not knowing and then knowing. And because this is a podcast, I'll give you an auditory example of this, again from Diana Deutsch. So I'm going to take a piece of music that you know, but I'm going to shift each note up or down an octave. So one note might be played an octave higher and the next note might be played an octave lower. And I want you to identify the piece of music. It's definitely one that you know. Now, I assume that you couldn't identify that piece. Now I'm going to play it for you without the notes shifted up or down in octaves. Now that you know the tune, I'm just going to play that first one again, and you should have little or no trouble hearing the correct melody. The only difference between the first time I played it and the last time is that now you have a top-down expectation. And so it switches from random noise to a tune. And so these are all examples in which top-down expectations are critical. Without them, you don't have any interpretation at all. And once you build an expectation, then the data have meaning. You need to be told what to see in the picture or to hear in the tune to get it. And the only difference between before and after is whether you have something to match it to, some top-down expectation. And as soon as you do, then you perceive. Now, just to be clear, this doesn't mean you can impose any top-down interpretation. It has to match sufficiently well. The thing about brainstorm green needle is that the bottom-up data can match either one of the top-down expectations for either word. You can hear green needle or brainstorm because these are possible words that can roughly match the bottom-up stimulus with all of its noise but you can't hear something totally different like Blue Reader or My Penguin because you can't make a good enough match between data and expectation. So there has to be a sufficient match between the top-down and the bottom-up for perception to happen. Okay, so let's come back to this issue about the assumptions that we make. How do we know what to assume about the world? Well, this relies almost entirely on our prior experience. For example, when you're judging depth, like how far different things are from you, which is again, a totally unconscious process, you can do this by comparing the images from your two eyes, but this is only useful out to about 30 meters. So it turns out the brain has other ways to determine depth. And one of the main ones simply pivots on its experience with the world. The visual system builds up prior expectations about the relative sizes of objects. So if you're standing outside and you see a dog in the distance and it takes up about as much space on your retina as the truck over there, you can assume that the dog is closer and the truck is farther away. Why? Because a close dog will look a certain size and a faraway truck will end up looking about that same size. And so your brain is able to instantly make the proper assumption about how far away things are. And you might be wrong, by the way. Maybe it's a miniature model of a truck that's really close and a monstrously huge dog that's really far away. But most of the time, your assumptions are fine. So data doesn't just come in from the world and get seen. Instead, your visual system capitalizes on prior expectations. And although this idea isn't always intuitive, it's not a new idea. In the 19th century, the German physician and physicist Hermann von Helmholtz was one of the first people to entertain this model of perception. He suspected that the small amounts of information dribbling in through the eyes were just too slight to account for the rich experience of vision. So he deduced that the brain makes assumptions about the incoming data based on previous experiences. And he correctly surmised that this is how the brain can use its best guesses to rapidly turn a little trickle of information into a full picture. By the way, if you want to look this up in more depth, look up Helmholtz's notion of unconscious inference. We infer what's out there and it all happens unconsciously. And you can also look up Bayes' Theorem as a way of approaching this mathematically, one way to think about this is that our judgments often rely not only on what's in front of us, but also on all of our prior experiences.
4: I'm
5: preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet.
4: Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: So, where we are so far is that the process of perceiving the world, of interpreting what we see or we hear, it's influenced by our past experiences, which shape our current expectations. And that's what determines what we think we see and hear. Now, it's sometimes the case that your brain has more than one prior expectation. It could be this or it could be that. And in this case, it's easier to witness something very interesting, which I want to tell you about now. So let's return to the Necker cube, that little wireframe drawing. So it's a very simple drawing, but it exposes something amazing, which is a competition that is always raging under the hood. Your brain is always trying to figure out what is going on out there. And the way it does this is by assessing probabilities. So this simply means you have some networks that are saying, yes, it's definitely this. And you have other networks that are saying, yes, it's definitely this other thing. In the case of the Necker cube, you have one network saying the cube comes out of the page this way and the other network insisting the cube comes out of the page the other way. And in other illusions, you sometimes have even more networks each voting for their thing. But the key to understand is that it's a competition. All these networks are screaming off and trying to dominate each other. And it's a winner-take-all competition. It's like king of the hill. Whichever kid is able to get to the top of the hill gets to push everyone else down. In the case of local neural networks... When one is successfully firing on all cylinders, it's able to inhibit the neighboring networks. It releases neurotransmitters that keep itself propped up and at the same time inhibiting the activity of the competitors. And whichever network is king is what you perceive. And because it's a winner-take-all competition, there's only one king at any time, That's why you don't see all the possibilities at once. You only see the winner. But here's the wacky thing. With the Necker cube, it really could be either way. It's equally probable that these lines represent a cube this way or represents a cube the other way. There's a 50% chance of either of these. This is known as equiprobable. So your brain takes this equiprobable stimulus and nails it down to one choice or the other, but If you have stared at one of these drawings for more than 10 seconds, you know that your brain changes its interpretation. If you stare at this wireframe, it looks like it's coming out one way from the page. But if you keep staring, it'll switch so that it looks like it's coming out the other way. And if you stare at this for a little while, you'll see that it switches back and forth. You see it one way, then the other way. Your brain will stick with one interpretation for a little while and tell you that's what's in the world, and then it will suddenly change its claim. Why? Because, as I said, there's a 50% chance of interpreting the cube one way or the other, and the brain cannot see both interpretations at the same time, so it switches between them. It's the king of the hill game, but the king never lasts. Someone always manages to knock that kid off the top and then the new kid has to defend the throne against other invaders. And that's precisely what happens with these neural network competitions. One network wins, but it doesn't last that long before it gets unseated. And then the other network is active in a loop of self-reinforcing neurons firing. It gets to keep control, be king of the north for a little bit, but then the first one unseats it again. So what you see with this simple drawing is the ever-present active battle in your skull to control perception. So in other words, if you have two possible top-down models, either of which could equally be right, they'll fight and you'll believe whoever the temporary winner is. And then you'll believe the next guy when he's back in power. And then the first network again. Now, the dress tends not to switch. And this is because it's not equiprobable. Your brain has developed very clear prior expectations about lighting and fabric and windows and so on. So my brain makes an interpretation and your brain makes an interpretation. And there's no reason for either one of them to question it. It's like playing king of the hill against some small puppies. No one's going to knock you off the throne. And that's why it's so difficult to change your interpretation of the dress. Even when you're told that some other interpretation is possible, your brain relies on deep assumptions about the world. And it's generally just too hard to unseat the monarch. But what the Necker cube reveals is that our brain's interpretation of the world can be quite active if there are other equally likely interpretations to be had. So the way we see the world can change from moment to moment. Now, as just a one-minute tangent, the funny thing is that you think you are making the cube switch interpretations by yourself. In other words, you feel like you're doing it consciously when the cube switches back and forth. But let's say we measure this. You stare at the little cube, and you hold down one key when you see it in this configuration. And as soon as your perception switches, it now looks the other way, you hold down the other key. And you do this for a while, back and forth and back and forth. You hold down a key to let me know which perception you are seeing. And remember how amazing this is because nothing is changing on the page. It's only in your head. Anyway, when we look at the data, it's clear that your results follow a particular mathematical distribution called a gamma distribution, which comes from a random process. For the aficionados, this is consistent with a Poisson process. All this means is that the switching is random. And this is exactly the distribution you would expect from randomness. Sometimes you have the winning network holding on to the throne for a long time, sometimes for a short time. And on average, it lasts this medium amount of time before it switches. The point is, you think you're switching consciously, but it's just random. The reason you take credit is because you think, Okay, I'm seeing it this way, and I really want to make it switch the other way. And I'm going to consciously work to switch it. Okay, almost there, not quite working, still trying, and then it randomly switches. And you take credit for it. Here's an analogy to help us understand that. You know those pedestrian crossing buttons that you push when you want to cross the street, and the little walk signal eventually shows up and lets you know that you're safe to walk? Some fraction of those buttons are placebos. They're fake. You hit them, but they don't do anything. You wait for exactly the same amount of time that you would have waited anyway. But you have a sense of control, an illusion of power over the light, even though the timing doesn't change one bit. And this is exactly the situation with this switching of the Necker cube. You consciously try to change it, And when it eventually changes on its own, you think, yeah, that was because of me. But when we measure the switching times, it doesn't change anything at all, whether you're trying or not trying, whether you're banging on that button or ignoring it. Okay, so now I want to zoom back up to the big picture about what we've been talking about, which is how your brain makes assumptions about things and how in some circumstances, these assumptions can fight it out. So we see this in language often. Take the example of puns. Puns strike us as funny because we're able to switch back and forth and see the same thing in two different ways. What do you get when you drop a piano down a mine shaft? A flat minor. The point about puns is that we know from the smile on the other person's face that there's some joke to be had, and so we search for other interpretations, and we can switch back and forth between them, just like a Necker cube. But something I found interesting is that brains can be lazy, and we don't always bother seeking other interpretations. If you don't have a strong enough reason to have more than one interpretation, then you stick with what you've got. And this is often true in language, which is very low bandwidth and depends enormously on assumptions. So the other night I was at a party and somehow the conversation moved in a direction where I mentioned the famous book by Rachel Carson called Silent Spring. It just so happened that no one there had heard of this book. So in a sentence I explained that the author had argued that if pesticide use continued, there wouldn't be any more birds. And so the spring season would come around and we would hear no more chirping. It would be silent. And I was sort of surprised when everyone said, oh, like I had just cleared up some confusion for them. Because it turns out that when I had said silent spring... The person to my left thought I was talking about a spring like a creek, so she interpreted the title as Silent River. And the person to my right thought of spring like boing, boing, spring, and the person across from me thought I was talking about the word spring like the verb to jump, so he pictured Silent Spring as a lion springing on him silently. And this is typical of the way that we take in little bits of data and impose an interpretation on them, and then we're done. Our brains aren't generally incentivized to keep looking for interpretations. You pick one, and that's it. And by the way, that's typically what happens with Laurel and Yanny. If you didn't know to listen hard for something else, you probably wouldn't. And with Green Needle and Brainstorm, unless you were told to switch your perception, You probably wouldn't have even thought to try it. And so I often wonder about the ways that we do this with many things around us. We pick some top-down model and that seems to match the bottom-up data and it doesn't strike us to examine further because we're pretty sure we have a match. I'll leave this as an open question for all of us to think about places in our life that maybe we haven't even thought to re-examine more deeply. So to wrap this up, when this woman in the UK sent a little cell phone photo to her daughter about her dress, it not only broke the internet, but more importantly, it breaks for us a critical assumption that almost everyone carries around. The assumption that when I look at the world and you look at the world, we see the same thing. The naive assumption is that there is simply truth out there and it's just a matter of opening your eyes. But the dress and hundreds of other illusions reveal that we don't see the world out there directly. Everything is interpretation. We only have a bit of data dribbling in through our peripheral devices, our sensory organs, and that data enters into a brain that's already churning and bubbling with its own activity, its own expectations. And so all we ever perceive is the best guess from our neural networks about what is going on out there, given a little rough data and a lot of assumptions shaped by our past experiences. So the next time you see a face in an electrical outlet, or you see a shape in a Rorschach blot, or you see the dress and feel certain about its color, just remember... You're not seeing the world as it is. You are seeing it as you are. Go to eagleman.com slash podcast for more information and to find further reading. Send me an email at podcast at eagleman.com with questions or discussions, and I'm going to be making episodes in which I address those. Reaching out on a narrow road from my internal world to yours, this is David Eagleman, and thank you for joining me in the inner cosmos.
0: The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God.